Welcome to the NEPA Project, a monthly podcast discussing NEPA and other environmental topics. In this episode, we will discuss the purpose of NEPA and other environmental laws and regulations from a historical perspective and its relevance today. This episode is brought to you by the Shipley Group. The Shipley Group provides training to help you comply with environmental laws and effectively and efficiently communicate environmental information. For more information, go to shipleygroup.com. The guests on this episode will be Joe Carboni, Judy Kurtzman, Michael Smith, and Ray Solomon. Joe Carboni retired after 37 years with the U.S. Forest Service, where he oversaw the agency's NEPA policy in Washington, D.C. and Atlanta. Joe also served as the Deputy Associate Director for NEPA at the Council on Environmental Quality in 2016, where he worked on NEPA guidance and procedures. Judy Kurtzman worked for Utah State University in the Quinney College of Natural Resources for over 15 years. While at the university, she taught courses on NEPA and other environmental laws for undergraduate and graduate level students and administered the NEPA certificate program offered in partnership between Utah State University and the Shipley Group. During the last 12 years, she has also taught Shipley Group courses. Michael Smith is a nationally recognized leader in NEPA and other associated environmental law compliance. With over 20 years of experience in project and program management, technical analysis, policy development, and training education for a wide range of public and private sector clients. Ray Solomon retired from the Forest Service in 2003 after 32 years of government service and is now an independent environmental consultant. Ray served as the Deputy Director of Ecosystem Management in Washington office before retirement. Let's get to the conversation. In this initial podcast, we're going to be focusing our discussion on the history of NEPA and on bringing you up to date on how NEPA is functioning today. It will include some information on Congress's debate over NEPA now and prior to its initiation in 1970 when President Nixon signed it into law. And we'll be talking about how other laws integrate into the NEPA process and how they have influenced the NEPA process. Beginning with the history, we'll be looking at what went on in the 50s and 60s prior to the signing of the law, as well as discussions about how NEPA influenced the passage of the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and some of the other important environmental laws that were passed during the early 70s. Joe will be talking about the CEQ regulations, which are an integral part of NEPA and an important aspect for anybody doing NEPA to understand and how those were developed and the court's influence on those regulations. And finally, we'll discuss the relevancy of NEPA today to federal agencies' decision-making process, as well as some of the accomplishments and challenges that are associated with the process and that are being debated today. So next, Ray. I've always felt that uh, before one can appreciate the National Environmental Policy Act and, and its implications and, and its importance to federal uh, particularly environmental decision-making, that, that one's got to understand the context of, of when this happened and, and why. And so let me give just a, a little contextual background as to where this fits. 
And so if you go back and you look at that era of particularly the 60s and what was going on in our American society at that time, you clearly have some major legislation, particularly with the Civil Rights Act that was passed in 1964, uh, which is a major piece of legislation that, that in part, I think, set a stage for some rather large pieces of legislation, including much of the environmental legislation that was passed in the 70s. So as a part of that context that sets the stage for NEPA is in the late 60s, 67, 68, you find that the Vietnam War protests were something that were on the agenda of American society, not unlike years ago with some of the debates we had with our involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq and all that. And so a lot of the Vietnam protests captured some of the societal interest and concerns with what government was doing or not doing. And then you get the civil unrest that resulted primarily from the Civil Rights Act and the expectations of that act. And so by the time you get to the late 60s, you find that a lot of the uh, unrest about unfair treatment of minority and disadvantaged communities comes into play. And so you start getting the riots in Los Angeles, the, the, which were in the early 60s. And, and then that culminates with the riots in Detroit in, in the late 60s. And so a lot of that social unrest about civil rights is also spreading throughout the nation and is occupying a lot of the discussion uh, of our society in terms of laws and attitudes and behaviors. And then you follow that with, finally, the assassination of Martin Luther King, which that just brought that to the forefront in, in a higher level than it was before. So you have all these social issues. Now, coupled with that, which a lot of people, I don't know whether they recognize the connection, but, but sometimes don't understand that in the late 60s was also the landing on the moon which was a huge technological advance. And the reason I bring that in is you will find that a lot of the legislation, particularly environmental legislation passed in that era, have a, a philosophy embedded in them that we can solve whatever environmental problems we have through technology. And you see that flowing through a lot of the regulatory efforts in the Clean Air, Clean Water Act, and so forth that, that go towards a strong regulatory technology-based approach to environmental problems. So you find that a lot of what Congress was doing at the time then is really focused on uh, using legislation as a way of setting some regulatory controls on some of the environmental problems we have. And so by the time you get done with looking at this era, uh, it has often been characterized as the era of dissent and disobedience, uh, meaning there's a lot of unrest, uh, there's a lot of dissent about what 
Congress and, and agencies ought to be doing relative to a lot of different issues, environment being one. And I've always argued that because some of these other social issues were prominent when the National Environmental Policy Act was passed and some of the other environmental legislation, quite frankly, it slipped under the radar screen because some of these other policy issues that outstripped uh, the concerns with the environment were also being discussed during that same period. And so that kind of sets the stage for the social setting. And then I'll turn it over to Michael to expand on what brought the environmental concerns and particularly the National Environmental Policy Act into play. So, Michael? Yeah, thanks, Ray. And yeah, I think, um, you know, that context is really important because even though we can point to a few specific things that happened directly related to the environment during this same period that Ray is talking about, particularly in the 19, the decade of the 1960s leading up to the passage of NEPA, you know, they weren't obviously divorced from all these other things going on. And I'll, I'll try to talk about some of those uh, connections, but I'll, I'll start with um, kind of a, a very seminal event that uh, I think encapsulated a, a number of different things that were going on. And it was very early in the decade. In 1962 was the, the publication of Rachel Carson's book, uh, Silent Spring. And that book, you know, Rachel Carson was a pretty interesting um, individual. She was a, a government scientist, uh, however, a marine biologist. And probably many of you are familiar, at least, with the, the topic and the subject of that book, which was primarily focused, as the title suggests, on birds. And the title being sort of a metaphor for the loss of birds, primarily through the use of uh, the application of synthetic pesticides. But, uh, you know, interestingly, she didn't have a scientific biological background specific to uh, you know, avian ecology or mammalogy, uh, but instead was a marine scientist, but uh, through her own personal interests and observations and uh, where she lived and with neighbors and uh, with literally with, with friends and neighbors, sort of documented anecdotally originally sort of the loss of songbirds. Uh, primarily through the application of several government-led uh, aerial spaying, spraying programs, both for mosquitoes and there was a, a, a significant, in the late 1950s, a significant event involving aerial spraying of DDT for fire ants and for a potential or the beginnings of an invasion of fire ants in the northeastern U.S. And actually, there was a, a very early, one of the earlier sort of environmentally related lawsuits where a group of citizens in Long Island, New York, actually um, sued the federal government for the application, the aerial spraying, and that case actually went to the Supreme Court, and the residents lost, uh, and the government prevailed. However, out of that came some language in the decision that uh, basically kind of gave the, the initial permission for citizens to eventually uh, gain standing uh, in environmentally related lawsuits, which, as we'll talk about, uh, later really gained traction at the very end of the decade and then through the 1970s and kind of happening uh, almost simultaneously with the passage of NEPA. And we'll talk later about how the courts and court decisions and the ability for citizens and non-governmental organizations to challenge the federal government under the statute 
were related to the statute uh, really has had a profound impact on the way we do NEPA today and, and continues to have a very uh, substantial impact for a number of different reasons that we'll talk about later. So that book and her research, which was basically, this was not a scientific book, this was a, a popular press book, but it was documenting a lot of research that she had done and basically sort of you know, restating research that was being done by both government and university scientists, and it actually in some cases kind of the beginnings of what became kind of environmental NGO community. And the Audubon Society was uh, very prominent in some of the early work that they were doing and some of the research that she documented about the effects of the synthetic pesticides on not only avian species, but there's a significant portion of that book that also talks about the effects on humans. And there was not a lot of concrete research that had been done to that point by universities and the federal government on potential cancer and other uh, afflictions that might result from particularly against synthetic pesticides. But there was some early research and some suggestions. And so that was also part of that work. And I think that it's uh, you know, it's interesting to see eventually as legislation evolved through the decade, as Ray mentioned earlier, that, you know, we ended up with a focus in NEPA that is, there's a substantial component related to effects of environmental harm, not necessarily on the environment per se, or on other species or the environment and ecosystem itself, but on the potential adverse effects to humans. And, you know, when we talk about the statute later, um, that becomes kind of a central a central focus as well. The other portion of her book was also the fact that um, she documented instances of the government and certainly industry having public relations and other campaigns, which she felt, and I think later were proved to be true, where basically misinformation or false information was being spread. And she felt that the, the process of the effects of these chemicals on both you know birds and, and other aspects of the ecosystem, as well as humans, needed to be opened up. And again, I think we see eventually in NEPA and certainly some of our other environmental laws that in addition to their protection or their disclosure of environmental effects components, there is also a, an opening of the public process that eventually happened through NEPA and other statutes as well that I think, you know, again, are completely or solely attributable to her book, but it was very influential and cited as being very influential. Now, going farther into the decade after the publication of that book, I think it's also interesting that we have several major sort of environmental um, disaster, maybe too strong of a word, but very prominent environmental uh, events. And as Ray said, you know, some of these things sort of slipped under the radar because there was so much else going on in other areas of civil rights and riots and protests and war. But some of these events did rise to the, the level of kind of being right there at the front of the, natura, the, the national radar. And I think it's also interesting that these things happened also at the, the time of really when television and television news, both at the national network level and at the, um, the local level, um, really came into being. And I, I think it's, it's sort of an accident that they kind of happened together, but I don't think it's a uh, an accident in the end that that ended up having sort of a big influence on how prominent some of these things happened. So for instance, the, the Cuyahoga River, a lot of people cite that as a, a very influential event. Uh, the fires that resulted from the, uh, the pollution on the surface uh, of the river resulting actually in I think a series of eight or nine different fires over a decade, but one in particular in 1969 
uh, just prior to the passage of NEPA that caused you know over a billion dollars of damage and and burned a, a large portion of the waterfront of Cleveland along the river. Um, again, had a lot of traction on the national news and the ability to to report such events sort of live or almost in real time with video footage was very influential. And then also that same year we had the the largest at that time uh, offshore oil spill happened in the United States off the coast of Southern California, off of Santa Barbara. And again, the, the images of thousands of oil birds and marine mammals, um, you know, were again, very influential, um, certainly to the public, but I think also it's been cited as to members of Congress as to the importance of responding to, you know, again, uh, this recognition that, you know, growth and development and other things were leading to some adverse impacts. And I think what Ray said is really important, and I would agree with him about science and technology as being a response. And I think it's interesting when you go back and you sort of read about what was happening at that time, you don't see the resistance that we hear a lot of today to regulation as being something that would harm or impede progress or economic development. But instead, it was really viewed as a solution that you know, we just haven't been applying technology and science to these problems, these issues, these, these results. But, you know, we, we will and, and these, you know, the legislation will require that to happen. And, and then when we do that, you know, all, all will be better, or at least, uh, you know, a lot will be better. And I think that that's also, you know, really important. And, of course, you know, in addition to these sort of nationally prominent events, there were a number of other local and regional level environmental issues that I think partly just as a result of the problem sort of building over time to the point where it became very prominent, such as, you know, if we might take like air quality in Southern California and the Los Angeles station is finally getting to a point where, you know, it's affecting thousands of people through cardiopulmonary and respiratory you know, disease and even leading to fatalities, you know, it just got to be such the point that it wasn't just a nuisance, like, oh, the air doesn't look so good, but was actually causing health effects. And of course, we had other kinds of chemical types of contamination and pollution, um, certainly in water quality as well, in addition to the Cuyahoga River, but in other places throughout the United States. And that was a, a big focus as well in a lot of the, uh, the environmental legislation. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Joe to kind of springboard off of uh, how some of those events then influence and then uh, eventually led us to the passage of uh, NEPA by Congress in late 1969. Joe? Sure. Thanks, Michael, and uh, thanks, Ray, for the background. Those are uh, gives us a nice uh, idea about the backdrop of where uh, Congress, you know, was acting uh, within that time. Uh, certainly, in the during the '60s, there were several efforts to establish some kind of a national program on the environment, uh, but it wasn't until 1969, during that time, as Michael was saying where some of these environmental issues were uh, in the forefront of uh, the, the news, uh, the Cuyahoga River fires and uh, Santa Barbara oil spill. And so now we're looking at 1969, and uh, in early 69, February, Senator Henry Jackson, who's the chairman of the Interior and Insular Affairs Committee, he introduces a bill which would create a Council on Environmental Quality, uh, but doesn't have anything in that bill about a national environmental policy or anything that is actually action-forcing, uh, requiring uh, the government to do anything 
in particular. So, but he introduces that bill in February, and then just prior to that, uh, uh, Congressman John Dingell submits an amendment to the Fish and Wildlife Coordination Act, and that contains a brief policy statement um, and about the environment, as well as uh, provisions for a Council on Environmental Quality. And so that became the early framework for NEPA. So then during Senate hearings, the requirement for a, uh, a detailed statement, which is what we now know as the environmental impact statement, that NEPA calls for a detailed statement by the responsible official. And that was introduced in the Senate hearings. And then also a statement of policy. So the bill passed the Senate by July of 69 and uh, unanimously. And so it applied to all environmental impacts rather than just only fish and wildlife. So now you've got this bill coming out of the Senate. You have one that was introduced uh, by Congressman Dingell in the House. Now have a conference in the conference language. Uh, Senator Jackson's version originally had granted each person a fundamental and inalienable right to a healthful environment. That was deleted in favor of uh, more of a less forceful kind of language uh, where the language says each person should enjoy a healthful environment. Another provision called for a finding by the responsible federal official as to the environmental impact of a proposed agency action. And so that finding provision uh, didn't survive into NEPA, but was an early attempt at something like the present uh, environmental impact statement requirement. Uh, Professor Linton Caldwell from the University of Indiana, uh, he influenced Senator Jackson's ideas on this provision. Uh, calling for something that was more action-forcing than just a statement of policy. So you see in 1969 a rather rapid development of legislation that starts in February. And by January 1st of 1970, uh, the president, President Nixon, signs it into law. So in less than a year, that was pulled together uh, recognizing that all through the 60s, there were several attempts at passing legislation uh, for environmental policy. But once this momentum coming out of this backdrop that Michael and Ray talked about gelled in 69, pretty quickly, the United States found itself with an environmental policy as well as uh, some action-forcing provisions in legislation. On the heels of passing NEPA, there were other uh, other laws that came into the scene, and Judy's going to cover those for us. Thank you, Joe. And uh, before I move into the other environmental laws, I just want to build a little bit on what Joe said about the passage of NEPA and the importance of NEPA's influence on the thinking of as as Michael and Ray mentioned, the thinking of Congress at the time and of the public. So under NEPA, the CEQ, the Council on Environmental Quality, was established. And 
Joe's going to talk about the CEQ a little more in depth. But the, at the time that NEPA was passed, CEQ was believed to be somewhat the overseer of the country's environmental status, what were the major problems we were having, as well as being in the president's cabinet and helping the president understand what our most pertinent environmental concerns were. Less than a year after NEPA was passed, however, Congress brought in, in December of 1970, or developed the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. And much like NEPA and the CEQ, the EPA was created to address concerns about environmental pollution, particularly the ones that Michael was talking about, pesticides and insecticides, and the influence that they were having on the health of the nation, but also the influence they were having positively on the um, ability for agriculture to be more successful. So when EPA was created in December of 1970, its purpose was to oversee the insecticides and pesticides being used, but Congress also, during that same time, established, or I should say amended, the Clean Air Act, and they added Section 309 to the Clean Air Act, which gave the EPA a part in the NEPA process. So EPA is responsible for reviewing all draft environmental impact statements that federal agencies have developed, as well as to put a notice in the Federal Register of the intent of the agency and the availability of draft environmental impact statements for comment. The EPA also was given the responsibility of rating draft environmental impact statements for two different aspects. One rating is based on the actions within that are being analyzed within the draft document, their level of impact, and the other rating is based on how EPA feels the adequacy of the document is in complying with Section 102 of the Act, as well as the CEQ regulations. So EPA has an administrative duty with NEPA. And while they don't have any regulatory responsibilities or authority, their rating of draft environmental impact statements can have a huge influence on an agency's ability to, first of all, justify their level of impacts to the public, as well as to the EPA and sometimes the Army Corps of Engineers. But it also influences the potential lawsuits that can come. If the draft EIS is deemed by the EPA to not be adequate in its addressing NEPA and the CEQ regulations, as well as having a high level, an unacceptable level of impact, 
potential litigants will see that as a as a green light, more or less, for lawsuits. So the EPA can influence, even though it's not regulatory, can influence the NEPA process for agencies. But at the same time, it can give agencies a head up to get their final environmental impact statement into line, as well as potential mitigation measures, helping them with mitigation measures that would reduce the level of impact. The EPA was tasked with this authority to write the regulations. In addition to the NEPA process, the EPA was also given responsibility for developing the regulations for the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. The um, Clean Air Act was first amended in 1970, and the Clean Water Act was also amended in 1972. So although we had a Clean Air Act and we had Clean Water Act of sorts prior to the early 1970s, neither of those laws had any real teeth, and they weren't really being acknowledged as something that that states or industry needed to have much concern about. So in 1972, or 1970, the Clean Air Act was amended to require states to start regulating industry and the amount of emissions in six different areas. They are referred to today as NACs. It's the National Air Quality Ambient Standards. And most states today have developed their own standards that are more stringent than the ones developed by the EPA. And federal agencies are required to follow the state standards if they are, they have them and are more stringent. The Clean Water Act, when it was amended in 1972, was also given teeth, and the EPA is ultimately responsible for overseeing the Clean Water Act, but they, also, they, they do it in partnership with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The Army Corps of Engineers is responsible for giving national and individual permits for destruction of wetlands and dredging and filling of waters of the U.S. And it is the Army Corps of Engineers who issues those permits. However, the EPA has the ultimate say over whether the level of impacts that particularly an individual action is having is too destructive and they can override those permits. And oftentimes that comes about during their review of an environmental impact statement when they are made aware of the level of impacts that an action may be having on waters of the U.S. So the EPA has played uh, a large role in 
in helping agencies, and some agencies may not feel this way, but in helping agencies address problems that the EPA identifies during the draft environmental impact statement stage, as well as implementation of mitigation measures that will reduce or avoid or potentially reconstruct after the action is completed. And the EPA also has played a large role in, as Michael mentioned, cleaning up our air and our water over the last uh, almost 50 years through regulations that they have implemented and enforced. At the time that the Clean Water Act was passed, two-thirds of our waters in the U.S. were no longer fishable or swimmable. Today, that number has dropped to a third. So the EPA has been working diligently to clean up a number of sections of our, of our human environment. So with that, I will pass it back to Michael, who will talk about the regulations and some of the court rulings that influenced uh, the National Environmental Policy Act and the regulations that came out from that. So, Michael? Thank you, Judy. Yeah, and as Judy was mentioning, you know, that early, uh, very early creation of that revision in the Clean Air Act, uh, Section 309, giving EPA that authority to review and, and comment and rate or grade federal agencies' statements that they were preparing in those very early days of NEPA was really part of a larger situation where there was a lot of confusion. Well, there were two things going on. I think one was a lot of confusion about what exactly the statute was calling agencies or mandating them to do in this sort of environmental impact review process. And of course, Part of that, uh, the reason for that is simply the, the language and the structure of the statute itself. For those of you who looked at it, you know it's uh, very short, particularly for a federal environmental statute. It's only about six pages long. And it's actually written in, in pretty simple, clear, understandable language. And some people would even, I think, say that parts of it are even written somewhat elegantly, especially from writing from Congress. But the result of that, it, it doesn't have a lot of uh, detail in it. And in fact, um, I think it would be fair to say it was pretty substantially vague on um, exactly how to comply with, particularly again, as Joe discussed, that, that action forcing uh, mechanism, the procedure to prepare the detailed statement. And so uh, that was one piece. And the other piece was there was just, you know, resistance from many federal agencies to to want to do that and to kind of change their decision-making processes, particularly, I think, um, not only disclosing effects, but also examining being mandated to consider alternatives as well, and and also in in some cases have a public process and and have members of the public suggest alternative ways of doing something that I think particularly for for agencies that employed uh, lots of experts and expertise in whether it's infrastructure or you know other areas um, felt that that was sort of a you know, maybe an improper questioning of, of their sort of authority. And so there was a feeling of, in the early days of, of a lot of just outright either ignorance or a lack of compliance. And so I think certainly, obviously, Congress responded to that by 
sort of giving EPA this, you know, kind of, I've heard some people call it sort of a quasi kind of policing power that, you know, doesn't really, as, as Judy discussed, have necessarily an, an enforcement, uh, you can't truly call it an enforcement mechanism, but certainly it, it was a layer of kind of external review or a separate review onto agencies. But the other big thing that happened as a result of this was the, the interjection of the courts, of the federal courts, and essentially citizens and others using sort of this uh, newfound power, I guess, if you will, in, in federal courts, again, in the late 1960s, early 70s, um, granting the status and the standing for uh, citizens and others to challenge the federal government on a wide variety of, of these newly emerging environmental statutes and including NEPA. And so uh, there was a flurry of federal court activity and decisions. And uh, one of the most prominent cases, and it was really the first federal court decision uh, at the appellate level um, that had a real substantive effect on how uh, NEPA was going to be viewed by the federal courts. And, and we see the uh, the language and the principles in, the, in this decision affecting NEPA practice even today, and it had a huge influence on how, how it uh, transpired through the federal government. And so the case was is called, uh, uh, the name of the case, Calvert-Cliss Coordinating Committee uh, versus the Atomic Energy Commission. And we don't have an Atomic Energy Commission around today. They eventually became the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC. Uh, but at that time in the 60s, there was proposed originally a nuclear power plant on the east shore in Maryland on the shore of Chesapeake Bay by the Baltimore Gas and Electric Company um, that came and, and probably I'm sure as many of you know, the project was eventually constructed despite the litigation, uh, the Calvert Clips nuclear facility. But at that time, there was controversy over the potential environmental effects um, of having this um, nuclear power facility located right uh, right above the bay and discharging um, uh, water, coolant water, into the bay and effects not only of potential radiological contamination in the bay, but also uh, the temperature and the heating and the effects it would have on the aquatic ecosystem, crab fishery economically, uh, et cetera. And out of that came originally some research from scientists at the Don Hopkins University in, in Baltimore that led to a, a, a group that formed called the calvert Close Coordinating Committee that eventually challenged uh, the agency's decision to construct the, uh, the power plant. And uh, ultimately in the uh, District of Columbia Court of Appeals, the court ruled in favor of the challengers. So it was really uh, the first loss by the federal government at the appellate court level. And in a very strongly worded opinion, the court basically said that in fact, the agency needed to comply with those procedural Section 102 components of NEPA, and that the agency's argument, which had been that their main mandate was not to consider environmental effects, but was to consider radiological contamination and the threats of accidents and safety, essentially for humans, but not necessarily other broader environmental effects or effects on an ecosystem. And uh, they also argued that they comply and they were complying with other environmental laws related to, as Judy mentioned, air quality and water quality and other state level types of environmental review and permitting. And because that they had done that or they were in the process of doing that, that that would essentially substitute for a NEPA review. 
And the court very adamantly said no, that um, they disagreed with that approach. And they said just because the agency might fulfill a, a threshold or a requirement for, an, say, an air quality impact or a, a level of water pollution, that didn't mean there was no effect. It just meant that it was below the level of exceeding some standard or requirement, but that there was still potentially an adverse effect and that therefore that should be uh, number one, disclosed to the public, but also number two, that the agency should then consider that effect amidst all the other impacts, both positive and negative and economically uh, and effects on the nation's energy supply, et cetera. And that the detailed statement that NEPA, that Congress required through NEPA was the vehicle in which they should disclose that essentially that conversation, and that decision-making process by the agency. And so they felt by the agency saying, well, we're not really going to do that, that they in effect were, and, and the court ruled that they were violating NEPA and they did require them then to go and prepare uh, what became an environmental impact statement for that particular uh, project. And so that, um, again, of course, uh, while that was just specific to that agency, um, there were certainly other agencies at the time that, you know, I think felt similar reasoning that, you know, their mandate, uh, particularly if they weren't, say, a resource agency like the Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management, that, you know, again, environmental protection wasn't in their Organic Act or in their preview, and therefore, uh, perhaps, you know, again, NEPA didn't apply, but um, again, the court very adamantly said yes, um, it does to any federal agency, and this is a requirement unless you have some sort of statutory conflict that would prevent you from doing or using the environmental analysis, um, you you had to do it. And so again, that had a very profound effect and, and that kind of opened the gates um, to a, a lot of uh, federal court decisions at the district court and appellate court level. And then eventually we started to see um, in the, uh, the mid 1970s cases, some cases going to the Supreme Court and another case that's often cited in this era as having a very influential effect on NEPA was the uh, the Kleppe v. Uh, Sierra Club uh, Supreme Court decision in 1976. And this was a case involving uh, the Bureau of Land Management considering uh, coal leasing in the Northern Great Plains. And they had um, one specific lease that they felt was at a project stage, kind of meeting that definition of a major federal action. And so they prepared a, a, a NEPA EIS on that particular proposal but the challengers led by the Sierra Club felt that there was actually a much broader plan that the agency had for a much more extensive program of coal leasing throughout I think, four different states in the Northern Great Plains. And therefore the agency should have looked at all of them together in a single deep analysis. Now in the end, the Supreme Court ruled um, against the challengers and for the federal government for BLM and said, no, that they didn't have to do it in this instance because those other actions in the future had it not advanced to what the, the court felt was that that proposal for major federal action stage. In other words, and, and this became kind of a famous quote that people use all the time today, they said that the other proposals were merely contemplated. And so this kind of established this question that had been uh, coming up repeatedly throughout the early days of NEPA, you know, at what point do you have, should you start the NEPA process and maybe even more importantly, at what point do you have to finish it before uh, taking action? So even though they ruled against that, there's some important other principles that came out of the language in the decision, one of which is the court said, if in fact the agency had had 
a number of different proposals coming to that formal proposal uh, stage at the same time, then in fact, they would need to do a single NEPA document that would look at, and they use the language of cumulative or synergistic effects. And in a lot of ways, this then influenced eventually, as I think Joe will talk about next, one of the key uh, requirements that was then added in the CEQ implementing regulations just a few years after this decision was the requirement to both consider cumulative impacts in an in individual NEPA uh, analysis, but also the CEQ's language to consider whether the agency may have a group of uh, cumulative actions as well. So that became an important component coming out of this particular decision. And so finally, the other thing that was going on through this period, in addition to the court decisions, was there was a lot of pressure on CEQ to develop specific instructions, essentially, for agencies to, to implement NEPA, again, uh, largely because of the, the, vague, the vagueness of the statute in terms of how to actually do that, the action-forcing procedure of preparing the detailed statements. And so CEQ actually right away, I think 1971, they published the first version of implementing regulations, but they were much shorter and briefer than what we, we use today. And they had several other revisions, but it was really the election of Jimmy Carter in 1976. And in the Carter administration early on, there was a, a big movement to substantially increase CEQ's staff uh, and a big charge. And, and this also came out of an executive order that President Carter issued very early in his administration that the agency actually really develop a much more detailed set of instructions. And the court decisions then that had occurred up until that time, 1976, 1977 or so, greatly influenced, I think, a lot of the key principles that then came out of the 1978 uh, issuance of the CEQ regulations that that team then had worked on through an extensive process of consulting with federal agencies and NGO groups and industry um, and putting that all together and coming out with that version. Of course, that version, even though it's a long time ago, almost actually, yeah, 40 years ago, um, as many of you know, that's essentially still the regulations that we use today. There was one relatively, uh, well, one change in one little section in the regulations that happened in the mid-1980s. Otherwise, those regulations from 1978 are still the ones uh, that we use today. So they're incredibly important and influential. And as we'll talk about uh, either later in this podcast or in later ones, it becomes a significant issue with uh, our practice of NEPA today because obviously many things have changed. We've had probably thousands of federal court decisions since 1978 at the, at the federal district court and appellate court and several Supreme Court decisions as well since then. But we, the, the regulations themselves haven't been changed to kind of update that. And so many areas of NEPA practice, say, for instance, how we prepare environmental assessments, there's still a lot of confusion about exactly uh, what the requirements uh, are. But uh, nonetheless, uh, that, that history to move to where we ended up with uh, those implementing regulations is important and, again, um, lives with us today. And I'm going to turn it over to Joe now to talk about what CEQ did there in that effort in the mid-late 1970s to create uh, the regulations that we use today. Joe? Thanks, Michael. As Michael has said, the um, well, CEQ did have early guidelines in 1971. Uh, they did not actually issue final regulations on NEPA until 1978. So you've got this period of time, eight years, 
from when the act was passed. You've got some guidance coming out of CEQ. You have a lot of work coming out of the, the courts and interpretations about what Section 102 of NEPA means, these action-forcing provisions. And so we get these these interpretations that, as Michael said, those things influence the CEQ final regulations uh, coming out in 1978. So while CEQ has always had some level of, of uh, guidance, it's this ongoing case law that kept ramping that up and fine-tuning it to what we currently you know, use today uh, with very little change, the one change Michael mentioned. Um, and so some of this language, like Michael says, uh, cumulative actions, cumulative effects that shows up in the CEQ regs, directly uh, influenced by the courts, and influences really how we how we approach uh, environmental impact statements today. So one of the things that the CEQ regulations and those are are in the Code of Federal Regulations, 40 CFR Code of Federal Regulations. 1500 to 1508. So I'm going to highlight some of these particular areas within the Council on Environmental Quality Regulations that uh, and they have a touchback to uh, both the Act and the requirements coming out of the Act. So the opening section of the CEQ regs uh, under their purpose and policy and their mandate it reflects the policy and the purposes of NEPA itself from Section 101. So that section kind of reestablishes or puts it out there for federal agencies that are uh, implementing the act to understand that this comes from a, uh, an interest of not only protecting uh, the environment and uh, taking on a responsibility as well as stewards of the environment for future generations. So uh, that's what the action forcing provisions from Section 102 are intended to do. And so CEQ reminds us at the, with that whole purpose of uh, why we even have the act to begin with. So that shows up in the regs. The CEQ regs lay out a process for compliance. Uh, basically, they lay out this uh, process that agencies will follow to integrate environmental impact statements with agency planning and decision-making, as well as with other environmental laws. So the, um, the intent is not just about writing a detailed statement, but it's to do this with a purpose and that it'll be integrated into agency planning and decision-making and that we'll be integrating other environmental statutes within that. CEQ regulations, uh, probably the bulk of them, speak to requirements for environmental impact statements. Many of these requirements coming out of interpretations by the courts. So the CEQ regs provide these detailed requirements uh, from not only the content of an EI environmental impact statement, but also how they will be circulated uh, for public review, public comment, again, laying out not just that it's about paperwork, but it's about information that will inform agency decision-making as well as involve and inform the public. C 
CEQ regs also um, have quite a bit in them about reducing paperwork. So early attempts at writing environmental impact statements, obviously uh, these are supposed to be detailed statements as is called for in the act. And so trying to get to the point of, well, it's not just about the paperwork, it's not just about uh, amassing paper, but it's about paperwork that is done with meaning for a decision and that can be used by decision makers and the publics. And so CEQ regs lay out many things. It's pretty much oozing with paperwork reduction and delay reduction uh, kinds of mechanisms. These include uh, things like environmental assessments. While the statute did not call for an environmental assessment, the CEQ regs allow for agencies to prepare environmental assessments for those cases where they're unsure whether or not they'll have a significant environmental effect. And so the intent there is an environmental assessment is supposed to be a, a concise document uh, that just provides the agency with its, for its, with its rationale as to why an environmental impact statement uh, won't be necessary. Therefore, there won't be a need for, quote, a detailed statement. CEQ regs also identify categories of actions that the agencies can identify categories of actions that do not typically have significant environmental impact statements. And therefore, those actions would not typically trigger the need for an environmental impact statement, nor would they need to trigger an environmental assessment. And so the CEQ regs issuing their regulations on this pushed this to the agencies and required the agencies to uh, put out their own regulations in complying with NEPA as well as within the umbrella of being within the umbrella of the CEQ regulations. One of the provisions that they're asking the agencies to do is to identify those actions that are typically would not have significant effects, which we know as categorical exclusions. And so this whole construct of the CEQ regs lays out in great detail the requirements for the detail statement, the environmental impact statement. It puts a backdrop to remind agencies about why NEPA was passed. And it also lays out requirements for, for agencies to write their own regulations to further efficiency in the act. That efficiency in the act is the ability to provide for categorical exclusions for those agency actions that don't typically have significant effects. Uh, the Supreme Court has also clarified uh, agency responsibility under NEPA and has stated that, uh, that NEPA has twin aims. And so there's two things for the agencies uh, that they have obligation for under NEPA. And these would be to consider every environment, significant environmental aspect or impact uh, of a proposed action. And then secondly, to inform the public uh, that it has indeed considered environmental concerns in its decision-making process. So this twin aim of NEPA, again, first places upon the agency an obligation 
to consider every significant aspect of the environmental impact of a proposed action. And second, it ensures that the agency will inform the public that it has indeed considered environmental concerns in its decision-making process. So Congress didn't enact NEPA and require agencies to elevate environmental concerns over other appropriate considerations, but it required that agencies take a hard look at their environmental consequences before taking actions uh, with significant environmental effects and to inform the public and the decision maker about those. So with that, I'll like to turn it back over to Ray to talk about some uh, current trends in NEPA. Thanks, Joe. Uh, yeah, and of course the the, the current trends are, are varied and, and rather complex, particularly with changes of administration, uh, changes with uh, Congress and, and all of that. But but let me uh, let me at least uh, uh, go back to probably looking at the late 90s and then into the turn of the centuries, where CEQ, I think, after uh, that initial number of decades, uh, saw some opportunities to focus attention on ways, as Joe already indicated, uh, of streamlining and making the NEPA process more, more efficient. And probably the, the first uh, effort to do so that was done in a, in a packaged way rather than individual items was the Modernization Report of 2003. And, and I think that report still today is very applicable with the kinds of uh, improvements or trends that uh, the CEQ had in mind. So let me just quickly summarize some of those and then add to that uh, a more recent one. Um, one of those is certainly looking at NEPA in, in an effort to be more collaborative, meaning uh, the involvement with uh, other state, local, federal agencies, as well as perhaps some uh, uh, working relationships and greater attention to public involvement and working in a more collaborative setting. Now, that doesn't mean collaborative decision-making uh, in the sense that uh, the federal government, of course, cannot, uh, as part of law, engage in discussions with all kinds of different interests and arrive at a decision, uh, but certainly we can engage in a collaborative process where you bring various interests to the table, uh, you dialogue with them in a more constructive way than we might have done back in the 80s and 70s. And as a result, you try to reach an agreement on what a course of action might be. So certainly this effort of collaboration uh, uh, has been uh, advanced by CEQ and a number of efforts since then uh, CEQ has put out a guide for public participation and collaboration, which expands on that. And so that's one of the areas I think that you find a current trend is, is moving forward with. Another that was also advocated back probably in the late 90s, but more especially into the around 2000 and I would say eight up to uh, current, and that is the use of adaptive strategies. 
meaning that NEPA was intended as a planning instrument or tool uh, and not an instrument that would be used to actually monitor, uh, adjust, and maintain uh, a, a continuous improvement program. And so the adaptive strategy was suggested by CEQ as a way of really ensuring whatever planning decisions were decided by your NEPA document, that you have a way of uh, adjusting your projects as you go, or certainly at a minimum that you would monitor what's going on with those projects and then in future projects be able to learn from those and make the adjustments through an adaptive management strategy. And so I think NEPA is gaining uh, more acceptance as a vehicle by which to do the adaptive model planning and take NEPA into more of an implementation tool rather than strictly a planning tool. A third one that has gained attention lately is the idea of, particularly for the regulatory community, of moving towards more programmatic uh, agreements uh, among the various regulatory agencies and management agencies on how to set sideboards, constraints, guidelines, standards for operating a project within a program agreement, uh, thereby freeing up the limited resources within the regulatory community, whether it's uh, NOAA Fisheries or uh, EPA or uh, Fish and Wildlife Service to devote their energies on the really more complex uh, projects and through programmatic agreements to establish protocols that, if followed, allow agencies to move forward in an environmental protective way without having to go to some type of a formal consultation with the regulatory community. And and that is gaining more and more emphases as we find government trying to be streamlined, which then brings me to the last item, and that would be particularly the emphasis of late by this administration of streamlining the NEPA process, uh, both in the sense of the amount of time it takes to do the analysis and complete the document, as well as the amount of paperwork that uh, is devoted, particularly to the length of environmental assessments, environmental impact statements. And that is an ongoing effort that I think a lot of agencies are currently wrestling with. Uh, and I would think that there are ways of, of reaching some of those goals, but we'll have to see how well the agencies can respond to that. And so with that, uh, I'm going to turn it back over to some of the other uh, participants and uh, have them interject any other trends that they see that might be going on. So Joe, Michael, uh, Judy, anything you want to offer? I would like to emphasize some of the things that Ray just talked about with the collaboration between federal and state agencies, local communities, uh, tribal entities, Alaskan and Hawaiian native entities. One of the things that right now we're finding helps the NEPA process 
to be more efficient and to, to uh, I guess, meet the goals uh, of the original goals and purposes of NEPA is that early, early collaboration <clears throat> is the key to efficiency and meeting the goals. That consultations with other entities that have information or regulatory responsibilities, getting those done right at the beginning of the process instead of waiting until later, and getting those entities to help in the development of even the purpose and need and the alternatives. So they're not coming in after the agency has pretty much finished everything and then saying, oh, by the way, we need, you know, to consult with you and, you know, take a look at this. But getting that input right at the beginning really improves the efficiency and effectiveness of the NEPA process. So I really wanted to stress what Ray was saying about that collaboration and the importance of it. Well, along those lines, uh, Judy and Ray, the of this early collaboration, what I'm seeing is more discussion about before even launching into, say, a notice of intent for an environmental impact statement, uh, that the agency is supposed to spend more time uh, up front trying to understand and articulate what is the purpose and need, and then what's the proposal, and does the agency buy into it? I mean, is it really something the agency intends to do? And so that's an investment in time outside of the NEPA process, but pretty much sets up for a more efficient NEPA process once the agency says, oh, yeah, we do have an action that we want to propose. We've thought through it, and now it's time to move it forward. And as Judy said, in some cases, the agencies are collaborating on that. Uh, so they're getting some level of buy-in, at least to the purpose and need early on, which helps to set a proposal up for success once it's into the NEPA process. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I would agree. <laughs> I, I I agree. I, I also see uh, what's going to be helpful with that as well, Joe, is uh, agencies are setting up their own dashboards, which which is nothing more than than a way of alerting the public when they start projects and where they are and, and, and completion dates. And, and I think by by doing that, it'll be much more transparent as to where agencies have started a project prematurely under the NEPA umbrella. Uh, where there's a lot, I think, more opportunity for upfront discussions, the more thoughtful development of a purpose and need and a proposal uh, before they start jumping through the hoops of, of uh, the NEPA process and making that more formalized. So I think agencies will learn as they create those dashboards as well. And I think one of the, you know, there's there's been this constant um, barrage of complaints about the length of time it takes for NEPA to get completed. And during a recent House committee meeting, it was brought up that a lot of times it's not the NEPA process that is causing delays, but it's the changing of the project that is that causes the delays. So, you know, it's originally the NEPA team is given a purpose and need with some um, 
alternatives and they're in the process of doing their analysis and then suddenly the proponent or the decision maker or whomever says, you know, I think we I think we should change this and I think maybe we should approach it in this way, which means all that effort that was done by the team in analyzing the original proposal um, and proposed action ends up being for naught and they're starting over again. And I think this collaborative process could help agencies define that purpose and need and define this action more concretely up front so those changes aren't being made in the middle of the process. Thank you for listening to this episode of the NEPA Project. To view the transcript of this discussion, go to shipleygroup.com backslash podcast. If you have any questions or comments in regards to this episode, or you have any topics or ideas for future episodes, please reach out to shipley at shipleygroup.com. We would love to hear from you. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts and share this podcast with your colleagues. This episode was brought to you by the Shipley Group. The Shipley Group provides training to help you comply with environmental laws and effectively and efficiently communicate environmental information. For more information, go to shipthegroup.com. Thanks for listening, and remember, NEPA is just good planning and decision-making.